37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Pixelated Paranormal. We've got a special episode tonight, so hold on to your pharaoh crowns because we're going to have you begging for your mummies. Because this episode, 156, is all about ancient Egyptian curses and sideshow circuses. And with (laughs) me, as always, is Preston. What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins? Who sometimes I really hate. (laughs) (laughs) And Big Steven. What's up, everybody? How are y'all doing? Well, I, I mean, unless you guys have anything at the top, I say we just jump into yep. it. We got a packed show tonight for everybody out there. <sighs> we do. This this deck is stacked tonight, so. Well, let's just get into it then. And I want y'all to pay attention, because much like the Ouroboros, that's the snake that's eating its own tail, I'm going to end tonight's episode in the exact same place where it began. So pay attention, folks. The beginning is the end is the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the first news story tonight, then, guys, is Mattel has just released a brand new wave of retro play action figures for Masters of the Universe. News? Question mark? Hold your applause. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Masters of the Universe is back on the shelves. They've got some brand new toys designed just like the original vintage action figures with collectible points of articulation. Collectibles, not action figures. That are That's true, because I've got an unpunched card on my Skeletor, and I'm super excited about that. That sounds like a weird STD. (laughs) (laughs) I've got an unpunched card on my Skeletor, and my doctor should be giving me a topical cream. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, you know, hopefully in October, I'll be able to get myself a Scare Glow, and then uh, that's all I want, just those two characters. To which you two probably have no idea who the second guy even is. I don't, but it's a cool name. (laughs) But I'm glad that that they're giving, giving props to your... Your era of toys that you love. Dude, I know. They just got through putting out brand new uh, exclusive, basically uh, regens of the original uh, Ghostbuster toys, too. You can find those at some Walmart still. Sweet. Yeah, I love it. What year is this? He-Man? Yeah. Ghostbusters? It's pretty awesome. Well, in the serious news, guys, Russia is having one hell of a time... Dozens of camels are now terrorizing people living in the Astrakhan region of Russia. A pensioner released several camels onto the surrounding steep. Now it's an 80-strong coven of wild camels. And they are breaking pipes, terrorizing fences, vandalizing gravestones, gardens, and chasing villagers in the towns of Oranzahel. That's terrible. Terrifying, too. In the towns of Oren, Zahiri, Fyodorvorka, and Nivorka. And for months since they were let loose by... <laughs> for months now since they've been let loose by an 83-year-old man named Yuri Of course it's Yuri. It's always a fucking yeah, Yuri mean, in Russia. Yeah, man. And some residents now are too scared to leave their homes. They said if you look one camel directly in the eyes, the animal will chase you and you have to run away. 
They said that at first there were about seven camels walking around, then they disappeared. But now they've... <laughs> now their numbers have risen to at least 57 in just this what? one town alone, and they don't know when it will stop. What happens to the guy that lets them all out? Oh, fuck, he's a pensioner, bro. He's 80. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck, yeah. He's like, yeah, that sucks to be you, nerds. I'm going to go drink more of this vodka and eat some more uh, blue cheese. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he probably didn't release. How many did you say they were, 80? Seven <laughs> in the beginning, and then they have just been breeding like yeah. camels. So this the the same thing actually happened in um, with Pablo Escobar and his compound because he created like a zoo and mm, yeah. he flew in hippos. Well, mm-hmm. native like Africa, like the conditions for like the environment for the hippos don't aren't conductive for like breeding. So like they mate like once every three years, like once every four years. So you take them out of their natural habitat and put them in something where it's like lush and warm and there's a lot of vegetation. And those fucking hippos like multiplied like jackrabbits. Like there was three in the mm-hmm. beginning and then there was like a hippo plague. So it's like the same thing happened here. Like camels are used to the desert. They're like, fuck it. It's hot. I can't do anything. And then they're like, fuck yeah, Russia. And then now they're all <laughs> over the place. Fuck yeah. Cooler temperatures for fucking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lo-fi snow it's to fuck a fucking dude. party. Let's go. Yeah. It's free. Isn't that wild though, man? And camels break. are bastards anyway. Yeah. Dude, spitting and biting. Yeah, and punch them in the head and they spit. I learned that from Conan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Conan. Oh That's funny. Hey, here's something funny. We're gonna bring up Conan at the end of the episode too. Hell yeah. Well, let's shift things from camels to robots. We gotta give a nod to old Rob and Rob's robots. Okay, so we're pretty much against the automation of our jobs, bringing in robots to do things we can do, right? Yeah. De- well, Depending on, the, on okay. the occupation. Perfect. Well, so here's an argument that's pro-robot. Because of where we're at right now with COVID-19 and the fact that you're having not only people dropping left and right with the, you know being infected or being down or worse, you've also got a lot of home health aides in the same boat. Yep. Like I know people who are on their third or fourth home nurse right now just because they keep on getting infected and having to call out or you know quit the houses they're working <laughs> at because they have to quarantine. Mm-hmm. What if you could have a robot take over and not have to have the need for an at-home nurse? Yeah. It, Socially I mean, assistive. It, it, it depends. I think it depends. Before you finish the article, I think it depends on <clears throat> the circumstances. Because sure. like them elderly people, sometimes the aides are the only people they get to meet. Like they don't have families. Sure. They don't have friends. They live isolated lives. And that's their one source of so, of a social interaction. Replacing yeah. that with a robot, that's pretty fucked up. But in the yeah. cases like this, where you want to protect the elderly person and protect the aid worker, and the easiest way to do that would be a disinfected robot. Right. Very true. Well, they say that these socially assistive robots can interact with people and can perform household chores, accomplish healthcare tasks, and even offer emotional support. Mobile devices with multiple sensors and manipulators, they can communicate through wireless internet connectivity and can function either autonomously or via remote control. These robots work in education, healthcare, and business fields as well as disaster relief operations. Telepresence robots, for instance, can allow children or adults homebound with <clears throat> sorry, homebound with chronic illnesses and other medical conditions to engage in school or workplace activities. 
The units are physically located in the classroom or the office, which gives the users mobility and a sense of, you know, somebody being on site. And there's actually a movie that came out in, jeez, I think like 2012 called Robot and Frank. And it's kind of on that same wavelength, like you were saying, Steve, like this guy gets a robot and it's really his only sense of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, social interaction. So it's like, I couldn't imagine like when you said like emotional support or whatever. So like how would a robot like make me laugh? You know? And then I think about like, uh, on the movie Euro trip when they have that robot mm-hmm. scene and like he pushes them and he's like, ah, 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 <laughs> <laughs> like he's like right. laughing. Well, and just think about this. Um, if anybody has a speakerphone on right now, Siri. Wait, no. Hey, Alexa, tell me a joke. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. They could tell yeah. you jokes because technically they'd be wired up to the internet. Yeah, but, but they're no, I think Borderlands and think Claptrap. <laughs> right? Yeah. As long as you don't have any stairs. So, I mean, still, we would be replacing, you know, important jobs. However, if you're in a pandemic like we are right now, What's so bad about having these things as a standby that can come in and actually help us in this, you know, grave time of need? Yeah. Mm. Things that definitely make makes you, go, you mm. yeah, definitely makes you look at things different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, why don't you kick things off on the curse side of things? Because <clears throat> oddly enough, you brought this up earlier and it kind of fell right into what we were going to talk about anyway. So, yeah. So uh, I was listening to Joe Rogan podcast, uh, Joe Rogan experience like I normally do. I don't listen to every episode. You listen to ones that are that have people on there that interest me, or I might find the topics they both have interest in uh, stimulating. But I heard that Post Malone was going to be on there. I'm a big fan of Post Malone, and I know some people aren't into his music. You know, they might be into some of his music, not all of it. Uh, but there's no denying that that guy seems to be very genuine. And and I mean, every video interview like he doesn't do the stereotypical like watches his p's and q's he's just like this guy that's nice hangs out and i i don't i mean i it's just it's weird like i don't it's hard to say anything about anybody famous because you never truly know especially you know with our culture now but he -hmm. seems like a really good dude so he's on he's on um joe uh joe rogan's podcast i haven't listened to all of it yet but they immediately start off with uh paranormal talk and like horror stuff Joe Rogan is very, he, he thinks everything's scary. So like he thinks every movie is like the most scariest thing. That movie was terrifying. And you're like, what dude? Like <laughs> shit wasn't. Because he's always on like LSD or yeah. strings or yeah. something when he watches right, right. these horror movies. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so when it comes to Post Malone, like Post Malone, like really likes horror and stuff. And they got onto the topic about when Post went on Ghost Adventures with uh, Zach Baggins and they talked about how on the episode and Joe hadn't watched it at that point. He's like, and he's like, no, I was like, it, it was really good, but it was like, I was really scared. And he took me to his museum and in his museum, we've talked about this on the show before because my buddy, my buddy yeah. David went to that same museum and they went to the room with the Dybbuk box. And basically in the, in the episode, they come to this thing of like some of, you know, some of it's hyped up for TV, but he says that, um, you know, post as well, you know, like, what happens if we take the cover off, you know, and then Zach's like, we can do it. We'll see if we feel anything. He does it. Post says he doesn't feel anything. And then Zach's like, well, I'm going to take the ashes of this dead per this dead woman or something and just sprinkle them inside the box and then close it, you know, whatever, who knows mm-hmm. if it was anything real, who knows. But ever since then, 
things have started happening to Post Malone. And up until this point, when they when he's in the interview and he was talking, I didn't put any of this together. I heard oh, about really? all these things that happened mm-hmm. to Post Malone, but to me, it was just like, damn, this dude's just like, you know, he's young, he's partying, you know, who knows what, what would happen, you know, like that type of shit. And he's famous, he's traveling the world. The more you travel, the more likely shit's going to happen to you, right? The more famous you are, the more shit's going to happen to you, I think. So in that in that time like i didn't i didn't realize that and you could tell as he's giving this interview like he's and he's fucked up drunk you know buzzed off his bud light he always does smoking weed or whatever <laughs> uh up until this point you could tell that like he was really freaked out by talking about this and and joe Rogan was like what do you mean he's like he starts listening off things happened to him so a while back uh his private plane was forced to make an emergency landing after its tires blew off they had to do an emergency landing but find the perfect place because the tires had blown off, so they had to be in the air for several, several hours. Mm-hmm. It was, like, very, very intense. And, like, he was, like, tweeting live from it. Like, he didn't know if they were going to crash or not. It was really intense. Yeah, um, you know, I've been in that situation before. Shayla and I were coming home from Chicago, oh, gosh, like, maybe 2008 or nine, And it was really icy in Chicago. It was really icy in Kansas City. There were really bad storms. And we had to circle KC a few times mm-hmm. to kind of wait out the storm, but our actual wings of our plane were taking on ice. So then we had to um, abandon the idea of landing in Kansas City. Holy shit, you guys hear that? No, what was it? I It was either a shit ton of gunshots or somebody blew three tires. I didn't hear anything. Whew, that scared me. Crap, man. Um, if you got that on audio, you should clip it out. I want to hear it. <laughs> I'll leave it in there if it if it makes it in. Yeah, cool. Um, so anyway, we the the pilot got on there and he's like, "Hey, I just want to let everybody know what's going on here." And basically, the idea was we're gonna fly all the way to Colorado, and if we can't land in Colorado, yeah. we'll have to do a U turn and then do an emergency landing in Oklahoma. Yeah. So we flew all the way to Colorado, but we couldn't land because there's too much ice on the. Oh my god! Plane. I need to go to Oklahoma. Yeah, so we landed in Oklahoma, we refueled, and then flew back to Kansas City. Storm was done. It was, yeah, it was the longest flight, and then to make things even more ironic and funny, we were in a uh, plane full of a bunch of, like, junior, uh, future uh, UN ambassadors. Whoa. And so they were all coming to the U.S. for the first time, and they were all going <laughs> to be landing in Kansas City for this really big, like, you know, mock UN, yeah. um, you know, advisor panel. Like the episode of Parks flying. and Rec. <laughs> yeah. And so like it's uh it's oh gosh, it's probably about midnight. And as we're landing in Kansas City, they're like, Oh my god, this has been the longest flight of our entire lives. Like these German kids and these French and Italian kids. And they're like, Oh well, at least when we land, the bar should be open for one more hour because the bars close at one. And then this guy kind of starts chuckling. He's like, You're gonna think I'm lying. But actually when you land, it's daylight savings today. So technically it's not midnight, it's already one in the morning. Oh, my God. And, you know, they don't have daylight savings in most of Europe or maybe all of Europe. Yeah. And they all start laughing. They're like, oh, my God, you almost had us there for a second. But no, no, you're just joking. And they were all like, no. Whoa. (laughs) And then one kid's like, oh, my God. So technically this flight's lasted an extra hour. This truly is the longest flight of my entire life. (laughs) That's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, not quite as harrowing as, you know, Posty's trip. But, yeah, I've, I've been there before, man. It's pretty scary yeah, shit. Fucking scary shit. So, also, um, he lived in San Fernando Valley. Now, <clears throat> I don't know all the details of this, so don't quote me on it. But I'm. he had this house, and 
he's been touring like crazy. Well, obviously right now, but at the time he had been touring so crazy and he wasn't using his house in San Fernando Valley. So mm-hmm. he sold it off. People bought it. Somehow his address got leaked and three armed robbers targeted that home and like beat the shit out of the man in that home, like really mm-hmm. bad. And, um, Posted, went in there, you know, paid the dude's doctor's bills, you know, hooked him up because it was literally like these guys came to his house because they thought they were breaking into Post Malone's house and shit like that. Yeah. So that was another thing that tripped him up. Um, There was another time where his he had this Rolls Royce. It was like he's got at the time had three different cars. The Rolls Royce, his original um, fucking Bronco or Blazer or whatever car when mm-hmm. he was young and he bought that exact car fixed it up decked it out and some other car this rolls royce was like his baby it was like his dream car when he's a kid blah blah, blah. uh he's driving it and got totaled and i mean you look at these pictures you're like holy shit how did this guy live through that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then like and so as he's telling all, all these things uh joe's like well do you really think that's because of that box he's like oh yeah dude like this shit didn't start happening until until i did that yeah. He's like, when I go to shows, like, he's like, um, sometimes I have writers. And so I was like, what? What do you mean? And he's like, I want, I want to get into it. So, like, I mean. So, it, what does that mean then? Like, I mean, I'm just like speculating, thinking into my brain, whatever it may be. But, like, if, if it was a writer, like, a writer is like, when I go to this place, I need this, this, this in my room. What happens if, like, mm-hmm. every time he goes to a, a green room, it has to be blessed or saged? Oh, you're <laughs> or, probably you know, right. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know what. I, who knows? Because as you're listening <laughs> to the interview, have... like, and I'm not just trying to like be a you know fanboy post Malone, but like, I yeah. think he gives a bad rap because of his looks. I did uh-huh. it. I he judged him like based off his book, looks. Right? You know, yeah, coloring book, and you know, and and he rolls with the punches too. He makes fun of himself, shit like that. But like. Mm-hmm. The dude's actually intelligent. Like when he starts, when he starts talking about like insects on this episode, he'll talk about these insects and how they relate to aliens. And, and, uh, he starts listing off like certain insects. I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? And then J- mm-hmm. Joseph is the same thing. He looks at Jamie. Jamie's like typing it up on his fact checker. And yep, there it is. Like he knows his shit. So like, I was like, and it just, t- <laughs> it totally blew me away. But yeah, he's yeah. like hardcore into paranormal. And I thought that was really cool to get that, that story about that Dybbuk box and like how like, we don't ever know whatever's on Zach's shows if he's real or not because he's very Hollywood. Yeah, well, and they've come out before and already said dildo that. baggins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've already come out and said uh, some of his former um, uh, fellow investigators that they were actually forced to ham up certain things and fake certain things yeah. because they just didn't get enough, you know, evidence in different screening, uh, different 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 filming areas. But um, yeah, you're probably onto something there. I bet maybe he has to have like a priest come out and bless the area, or yeah. maybe sage the area or something before he goes in the green room or whatever. Yeah, I know. That's I know he's very like he's very big into like security and stuff because he's had like some brushes with people. And I mean, when you're mm-hmm. as popular and as rich as that man, you got to have that security. And it sucks yeah. when you're when you're a social butterfly when you trust you're trusting. You know, we we watched that Michael Jordan documentary. And oh, yeah, you yeah. saw his entire security force because right. when you get out to places, you never know what the hell's going to happen and how people are going to react, you know, like, and Hey, thank you for watching that documentary too. Cause I know phenomenal. I mean, you're even more anti sports ball than I am. Yeah. Phenomenal. I, I, we shouldn't say anti, we should just say we don't sports. Yeah. 
and it's not yeah. and and it's it's so much more than a than a than a, a sports documentary yeah, it's dude. an entire culture it's empowering mm-hmm. for not just it was an not, era. not not just black men and black women but like for people in general like it just to show like what determination and mm-hmm. and and like positive always go 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 forward 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 can do to somebody and and not yep. just to somebody but an entire world it's yeah. insane there's there's few professional sports you know icons that reach that level and you know it's you know Muhammad Ali Michael Jordan um not to be a geek or a nerd here but the undertaker in professional wrestling <laughs> Like all these people just have such a career of highlights and defying the odds. Uh, it's just, it's so impressive. So yeah, if you guys haven't watched it, watch the last dance about Michael Jordan. It really is impressive. And then uh, on, uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast, it's episode 1516 that Post Malone's on. And I mean, I, I like the guy more and more every day. I'm not a big fan. You know, I can't, I can't get behind an entire album. I think the best thing to do for people is to put the music aside. And mm-hmm. just watch some of his interviews or anything like that, or like just videos of him doing funny shit. Like he's just a wholesome dude. And yeah. then to me, that opened up my my brain to his music, and like, and then I and then I realized like he's doing music for his life now, like that he likes, mm-hmm. that he enjoys, and like, but he doesn't want to be tied to just one genre of music. And I think that's fucking awesome. Yeah, I've told you I want that guy to put out a acoustic. Yep album of nothing but covers and when he did that when he did that when covid first happened and Mm -hmm. then the whole lockdown he did that fucking um um posted by bud light it was at at his at his bunker in utah and they did like a little Mm -hmm. little video and he came out when (laughs) i know i won't forget that i watched it live and he came out and he was wearing the dress just like kurt cobain did i was like this motherfucker So <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate him more and more in some of his music, but I, I like that interview too. Yeah, I, I haven't. I'm only about an hour into it, so they haven't talked about the insect stuff yet. But it's it's fascinating to hear and listen to. And I mean, the dude is well spoken. And uh, we had a listener story come into us from somebody who traveled to uh, Vegas and went to that museum mm-hmm. and encountered that Dybbuk box, and she had some, uh, you know, some um, unsavory side effects when she got back. So I mean. Is that the one we were talking about before on the show? Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought you were talking about. So, I mean, yeah. That's somebody who's not famous who, you know, reportedly had some, you know, bizarre uh, interactions and encounters when she got home. So it's just, it's just, it's awesome to see like when somebody of higher, hey, or stature or whatever, like somebody famous. Yeah. That a lot of people seem to respect or have a, have a, a closeness to actually be able to openly talk about that they believe. Yeah. 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 I believe in aliens. Like what do you, what about it? You know what I mean? And like, they talk mm-hmm. about it and, and not feel ashamed of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. It's gotta man. be yeah, hard. I mean, when you're that, <laughs> well, and we're, we're everybody's the looking at you the microscope. disclosure. Yeah. You know, so why not just sing it from there? And also like, he's got the perfect persona. Why not? As Post Malone be like, fuck yeah, I believe in ghosts and aliens and all this shit. Like, yeah. how's it possibly going to, I have a fucking reputation? sword on my cheekbone. <laughs> yeah, I've got face tattoos. No, of course, I look tattoos. like a fucking alien. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh man. Well, that's awesome, man. It's funny you brought that up because Preston and I were uh, writing this episode a few days ago, talking about you know mummies and curses and stuff. And you're like, you just randomly popped up, man. You know, listen to this thing about Post Malone and you know being cursed. It's funny because I don't think you were on the show because when did he? Well, you might have been. Um, 
we talked about that briefly post Malone going to uh, the museum and, and possibly being cursed. We talked about this before, but you may not have been on that episode. I don't think I was on that episode, no. Preston. Do you remember that, Preston? Nope. Not at all. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it's not Radiohead, so he tuned it out. Yep. <laughs> Soundguard to get it right, bitch. That's right. <laughs> this shit. Audio slave. At least, it um, at least it ain't Tool. Can all agree oh, on that, right? Yeah, that shit, right? <laughs> Go fuck yourself. The only Tool I listen to is Nickelback. Yeah. Person's like, all my Mason friends just stop listening. Do they yeah. all like Tool too? Off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just offended like the largest part of our audience. Way to go, Steve. Awesome. That's pretty bold of you to say, Preston. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? Listen to what you want to listen to. Yep. I uh, I had seven shots of espresso the other day, and Spice Girls Wannabe came on the radio, and I think I almost blew a vocal cord. I was rocking out to that I part, think, so, A, guys, you're, you're uh, a coward because you can't do that without espresso in your damn liquor courage. It's called espresso, not espresso. <laughs> yeah. Espresso, espresso, whatever. <laughs> to, uh, to all the <laughs> listeners that are listening out there, what I want you to do is after you listen to this episode, I want you to go on like Instagram or Facebook, and I want you to comment that you listen to Tool just to prove to these guys <laughs> that 90% of our listeners actually like that band. Uh, that's awesome. And then I have, no, I have nothing against. I have nothing against Tool. I no, I love their. I love no, their no, no, dedicated don't fan base. Now. Don't no, 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 no. I I love their fan base. I've not delved delved into their catalog that much. Mm-hmm. What I listen to, I do like. What I, their famous songs, but like their fan base is dedicated like a motherfucker, and I and I dig that. Because I'm part of one Steve, of the fan bases. Steve, just make sure you look behind you because you're getting awfully close to that wall as you back up. Yeah, 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 here we go. Here we go. <laughs> he got me again. I was like, wait, what? I looked back. <laughs> well, you got me again, got you fucker. Oh, man. Uh, well, you know, okay, I'll say this. And this is not backpedaling. Uh, Preston, you did take me along with your brother and Eric and Patty. We went to see... Um, Pussifer. Yeah. Thank you. I you know, yeah, we just, just a small little a band and Sean got to go. Like, oh, I'll take you to this random show. Fuck well, her. I guess I guess your brother didn't go because I got his ticket. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's that's what it was. That's yeah, phenomenal. You gave me his ticket. And it was fun. And the best thing about fun. that is, is that we both got to experience that together. Not that show, but we got to experience of going to a show, not expecting what mm-hmm. we got, and then being blown away and be like, okay, that's dope. That's how it was when we went to Kesha. So when you that's went true. to Pussifer, yeah. you saw the same thing. Of that, like, yeah. what am I going to? And then you ended up digging it, and you're like, okay, that's tight. Yeah, fair is fair, feeling. Preston. Stephen and I went and saw Macklemore, who was uh, a double bill with Kesha, and Macklemore is phenomenal. Kesha may have been a better performer all around as far yeah. as the entire show. It blew us away. And we we're like, what yeah, the so, fuck I mean, just happened? <laughs> yeah, also, listeners, if you're a fan of Kesha, please go on Facebook, go on Instagram, and let us know. <laughs> yeah, sure, we'll do a battle yeah. of a, battle of the hashtags. <laughs> Who do you like better? <laughs> no, but yeah, no, in short, listen to what you listen to and love it. Yep. Yep. 100%. Well, cool, man. So that, uh, that Besides just Besides Dave Matthews' pro- band, of course, but. Fuck you. <laughs> I am relieved. God, this is going to be a four-hour-long episode, much like the Post Malone interview on Joe Rogan. Yeah, no uh, shit. We were supposed to go to Arkansas. God, I shouldn't have said Arkansas, should I? Um, we were supposed to go to Arkansas and see uh, Dave Matthews in September, and they let us know that they will uh, honor our tickets for next year's show because they had to postpone, much nice. like every musical concert yeah. right now, man. Gosh, yeah, that happened food to fighters, me and uh, Jeffrey on the Black Crows. So we got tickets to go Gosh. see him in August. 
and now we're yeah. looking at September of next year. Now yeah. that's cool. That's they they instantly offered you the same dates because most yeah. places are just automatically refunding you because they can't guarantee the same dates. Yeah, the following year. And I, what's funny is I never read small print, so like on the day of tickets, they said you know you have until like June eighth to reply to this to get a refund. Otherwise, your money will be locked in and we'll just honor your ticket for next oh. year. Well, you're going to so, go either I mean, way, so. Oh, yeah, for sure, Yeah, man. might as well. For sure. It, hell, it was the one time we can go see them and get tickets for regular price and not that bullshit scalper ticket price. Yeah. So my, um, we're talking about concerts real quick. This is, it's a really interesting, in Colorado right now, um, this mutual friend of ours, they just went to this punk show. And you're probably mm-hmm. thinking, oh, my God, how irresponsible to go to a show during the time. The way that these, this is crazy. You have a venue, right? Not a big venue, not a huge venue, just for a punk show. Bands will sign up like a Battle of the Bands type situation. So say there was a band called um, the, Shitty, the, the Shitty Shits or something like that. So the Shitty Shits go on at 7 o'clock. They're, yeah. on, they're on this piece of paper. People go up to the venue and they go, okay, I want to watch the Shitty Shits at 7 o'clock. Once that, <clears throat> say there's like 12 people, that's it. So oh, wow. when you go to this show you're only paying for the band you want to watch oh cool so they so like adam and a couple other friends from here locally they all went to that to see this band and they mm-hmm. were one of the first of the like thing i offered like 10 or 12 people in there and they get to go there and they can't stand by each other they got to have like six foot between each other and like and there's like it's him showcasing on the snapchat was insane like watching how a show can be performed with COVID. Like it's really weird because there's not like a bunch of people in that you feed off yeah. that ener- energy, but it's interesting to see like that that still happened. But I was more impressed with like it being a battle of the band situation. So you have, they had like 12 bands on this, on this list and then each band played for, for like 15, 30 minutes a piece. And only oh, wow. s- that many people were allowed in there. The rest of people had to wait out outside and a social distance outside. So it wasn't on the venue. Well, I mean, that crowd size, that's about average for a Tool concert, right, Preston? About 12 people? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the show. Oh, God. Yeah, listen to us. <laughs> All right, cool. So, Steve, you segue perfectly into tonight's main topic of... The shitty shits? Curses. <laughs> Mummies and curses, or mummy curses. So let's kick things off, first of all, with perhaps the most famous mummy curse of all time. All right, now I'm going to pull a Preston here and give you guys a quick history lesson. We probably all studied King Tut's tomb, but here's a spark notes of what happened. So, He died, they buried him, put him in a tomb. It's haunted. (laughs) (laughs) George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert the fifth Earl of Carnivon. Loved to race around in his newly invented automobile. But Cruising because of an automobile, automobile accident in 1901, he was left severely ill. Being vulnerable to the English winters, Lord Carnivan began spending winters in Egypt in 1903. To pass the time, he took up archaeology as a hobby, turning up nothing but mummified cats his, during his first season. Lord Carnivon decided to hire somebody knowledgeable for succeeding seasons. For this, he hired Howard Carter. Now, Carter worked in Egypt for 31 years before he found King Tut's tomb. Uh, He had begun his career. What? It's uh, Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon? Yeah. 
Can Arvin. Let's see here. Are you correct? Carnivon? No, it's Carnivon. It's Carnivon. No, all the history shows I've ever walk, watched is uh-huh. Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon? Yeah. Well, we're going to call him for LC. them because we're a more syndicated, popular <laughs> show. I mean, yeah, we they're know uh, you know they're <laughs> academics, so I mean they got a they got a history you know degree behind them, like a master's in history. So well, dude, this is twenty twenty. You don't need any of that shit. We got armchair <laughs> yeah, shit, experts yeah. everywhere. Yeah, and while it's cute, they went to school for all that. <laughs> Preston, you and I learned from the best, old Fritz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Continue so, on. <laughs> yeah. Carter had worked in Egypt for 31 years before he found King Tut's tomb. He began his career in Egypt at the age of 17, using his artistic talents to copy wall scenes and inscriptions. Eight years later, in 1899, Carter was appointed the Inspector General of Monuments in Upper Egypt. And in 1905, Carter resigned from the job. Later in 1907, he went to work for Lord L.C. <laughs> Carnivon. So, the British archaeologist and the Egyptologist Howard Carter, along with his sponsor, Lord Carnivon, spent many years and a lot of money searching for a tomb in Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Just one tomb is all they wanted, because so far, Lord Carnivon only found a mummified cat. Still cool. I mean, yeah, I would be happy with that. I'd probably call it a day, really. No, that would make me want to find a tomb even more. (laughs) For real. Right? That's pretty much what happened. I think he caught the bug and just couldn't quit. Oh, yeah. So on November 4th, 1922, they finally found the big hall. Carter had discovered not just an unknown Egyptian tomb, but one that had lain nearly undisturbed for over 3,000 years. What lay within King Tut's tomb, you might wonder? Well, it astounded the world. Carter himself wrote, With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner darkness and blank space as far as an iron testing rod could reach it showed that whatever lay beyond was empty and not filled like the passage we had just cleared candle tests were applied and as a precaution against possible foul gases and then widening the hole a little i inserted the candle and peered in lord carnivon lady evelyn and calendar standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict at first I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But persistently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold, everywhere the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity, it must have seemed like for the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnivon... Unable to stand the suspense any longer, he inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get the words out. Yes, wonderful things. As he stood there with a massive heart on, because he's so excited. Yeah. That's crazy. He probably could... had an unpunched Skeletor, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I could, not understand. <laughs> I could not fathom that excitement of knowing that all that Dude, searching, yeah. you finally find something, and then not only do you find that, but you find you know, gold and just statues and all kinds of cool shit, man. It's awesome. I can just imagine the one part of the quote he left out is Carter probably then turned around and gave Carnivon the finger and said, fuck your cat mummy. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) So a year and a half later, they were finally ready to lift the lid off the coffin. 
Conservation work of other objects already removed from the tomb had taken precedence, so thus, the anticipation of what lay beneath was extreme. So do you think by this time, when they're deciding to open the coffin, that this time they know that that's whose tomb it is? Uh, Preston, remind me. Yes, probably. Yes. Um, this ties into my story. Okay. Because yeah, it does. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, okay. So, yes, they knew because uh, they've been frantically looking for it because they discovered, like, five years prior, um, they discovered, like, the Valley of the Tombs, and there was all, like, these kings and queens. And side note, none of those tombs had the inscriptions of a curse on the outside. So like when they just, when they finally like, Holy shit, this is the real King Tut's tomb. This is the guy we've been looking for. And they're like reading the, the descriptions for the curse. Like they weren't mm-hmm. pe- like, why does this guy out of all these other tombs? Like, why does he have the curse and the other ones don't? Um, mm-hmm. But they'd been frantically looking for it. So yes, they, they knew ahead of time that yes, this was the real deal. This is King Tut. We finally nailed it. Ugh. Boom shakalaka. Yeah, because there were tales of, you know, the fabled King Tut's tomb, Tutankhamun's cool. tomb. All right, go so, on. I, I like this story. I like stuff like this. <laughs> so inside, they found another coffin. So basically, a Russian doll set up. You have the great big sarcophagus inside another smaller coffin. Then lifting the lid, a second coffin revealed. A third coffin made entirely of gold. And on top of the third and final coffin was a dark material that had once been liquefied and poured over the coffin from the hands to the ankles. The liquid had hardened over the years and firmly stuck the third coffin to the bottom of the second. The thick residue had to be removed with heat and hammering. What do you think that, what do you think that stuff was? I, I don't know because I don't think... It could have been wax, but there's rumor that there wasn't a lot of wax in that area. It's a, Aliens, a, man, I'm telling you. It's a, a tar substance, a resin? like a resin tar. Um, it's okay. something that they would use, um, like pitch, to uh, seal like boats and stuff. So that was kind of like the final preparation to preserve the body. Oh, cool. Once you wrapped yeah. it, you would use like this tar-like shit, and it would harden and create like a cocoon around the mummified body. Wow. Shit, yeah. Well, then, through the hammering and the heat, the lid was lifted off the third coffin. It was raised. And, Stephen, who do you think was buried in King Tut's tomb? Uh, King Tut. <laughs> Dad jokes. Tut? <laughs> I was going to say, a, a, a guy named Tut, I guess. <laughs> a guy named Tut? Theodore Roosevelt? Just some dude named Tut. <laughs> <laughs> the Tut. At last, the royal mummy of Tutankhamun was revealed. It had been over 3,000 years since a human had seen the king's remains, and this was the first royal Egyptian mummy that had been found completely untouched since Tutankhamun's burial. That's fucking amazing. Sir Carter and the others uh, hoped King Tutankhamun's mummy would reveal a large amount of knowledge about ancient Egyptians and their burial customs. Blah, 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 yakety-schmackety, we kind of know the rest of the crap they found. Lots of riches. So here's what we're getting at, guys. Tutankhamun's tomb was opened by Carter and Co. on November 29th, 1922. But like Preston, you were saying, a curse is supposed to have been inlaid. So let's go down a list of all the crazy Post Malone-like shit that happened. Lord Carnivon died. (laughs) (laughs) Just do that every single time. Damn, Steve. Cut cut down the spoilers, okay? Can I I get the sound of a rubber stamp? Boom. Dead. 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> KO. Lord, you're right. <laughs> Lord Carnivon died April 5th, 1923, just about a year later. A financial backer of the excavation, he died from an infected mosquito bite. <laughs> yeah, what a way to go, right? Nile, West Nile virus. I guess it is back in the 20s. So yeah, yeah, we didn't have a whole lot we could do. Yeah. George J. Gould I died May 16, 1923, a tomb visitor who died from a fever following his visit. Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey died July 10, 1923, an Egyptian prince who was shot and killed by his wife. Colonel the Honorary Aubrey Herbert died September 26, 1923, the half-brother of Lord Carnivon. He died from blood poisoning related to dental work dirty pliers. Sir Archibald Douglas Reed died January 15, 1924. The radiologist who x-rayed Tutankhamun's tomb died from a mysterious illness. Uh, I don't know. Radioactive material, maybe? <laughs> Fucking a radiologist in the 20s? Look at this. I can see my skin. <laughs> yeah, like, why, why can I see through my skin? Oh, I don't know. Your profession? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Sir Lee Stack died November 19, 1924. The Governor General of Sudan was assassinated driving through Egypt's capital of Cairo. A.C. Mace died April 6, 1928, a member of the Howard Carter excavation team. He died from arsenic poisoning. The Honorable Mervyn Herbert died May 26, 1929, another half-brother of Lord Carnivon. He died from malarial pneumonia. Captain, the Honorable, Richard Bethel, died November 15, 1929. Howard Carter's personal secretary, who died from a suspected smothering in a Mayfair club. What's a Mayfair club? Fuck if I know. Some Sex shit dungeon? Masons do. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Preston's not quite there Must yet. Must be an Egyptian yeah. Mason thing, I don't know. You have to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> Yeah. If you have to ask, your body's not ready and you haven't stretched enough. Yeah. Ooh. Let's look up Mayfair Club. Let us know on the uh, Instagram what, what a Mayfair Club is. Have you ever watched Tool or Kesha in a Mayfair Club? <laughs> uh, Mayfair Club, fitness club in Toronto. So he just pulled a hammy at a gym. Um, okay, Mayfair Club basically was like a card club where okay. you'd go and just play cards and, you know. You Typical know, uh, 20 shit. Yeah. Something about ill reprieve. Um, Richard Luttrell Pilkington Bethel died February 20th, 1930. Father of Richard Bethel. He supposedly threw himself off his 17th floor apartment when he saw the ghost of a mummy. <gasps> no, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh, okay. Howard Carter himself, the cart man <laughs> who opened Tut's tomb, died at the ripe old age of 64 from Hodgkin's disease. His older brother, William, died the same year. So I think all all in all, except for, you know, Carter's old age, some might say a mummy's curse. I don't know. No? I want to see how many people survived the excavation team and all the people, the other people there. Because, like, a lot of these, dude, it's the <laughs> 20s, bro. And they're dying of, like, yeah, a fever. I'm going to turn around <laughs> for you, Steve. Don't worry. Okay, yeah. And so You like, can die of stubbing your toe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no shit, back in the 20s. <laughs> I got a splinter. Dead. <laughs> I got a toothache. Dead. I sneezed too hard. Dead. All right. So if if my my skepticism on the twenties is 
and the curse mm-hmm. is there. Preston, what do you have for modern times? Well, now, ho, 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 hold up. Oh, yeah. Sean still got modern times. Oh, is, is it still Sean? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's fast forward to modern times. So, Sean, what do you have for modern times? I had a great setup here. <laughs> yeah. Let's oh. fast forward to modern times, modern tombs, and a modern curse. July 20th, 2018. You remember, we talked about this. Uh, Steve, I think you should have been on the show by then. Egyptian archaeologists had discovered this nine-foot-long, yes. 2,000-year-old sarcophagus that was this black rectangular structure. And they wanted to drink the liquid. <laughs> yes, oh, they did, dum-dums. Up, dude. So did we learn nothing from the 20s? You don't drink unpurified liquids. Yeah. So we talked about this. They found this, you know, nine foot long, 2,000 year old rectangular sarcophagus. When they finally broke it open, they found that sewage had leaked inside. There were three skeletons and a bunch of poopy water. <laughs> and the Joe ongoing dirt. joke was You ate off of it. <laughs> Drink yeah, shit, right? dude. <sighs> but that begged the question, remember? Because everybody's like, should we open it? Should we not open it? And what do we all say? You're going to no. curse yeah. the world. You yeah. idiots. Not too long ago, April 4th, 2019, guys, our good friend, Preston and I's love child, Josh Gates of Expedition Unknown. They discovered a actual uh, mummy, and they decided that they would post a two-hour special to be broadcast on the Discovery Channel to see explorer Josh Gates and his team open the prized hollowed tomb that dated back clear to the first pharaohs of 3100 B.C. Sick. They were the first to navigate an underground network of tunnels and chambers where 40 mummies thought to have been members of the ancients ancient Egypt's noble family elite were laid to rest. I'm excited as Josh Gates takes us on one of his most ambitious expeditions yet, said Nancy Daniels, Discovery Channel's chief blah blah executive. Joining Josh on the TV show will be personality Chris Jacobs and Egyptologist Dr. Zahi Hawass, as well as Mustafa Waziri, Egyptian... Egypt's Secretary General of the Supreme Council of Antiques. Viewers will then see the team track down the sarcophagi through a maze of ancient tunnels at the unknown site. On Sunday, April 7, 2019, Discovery Channel had viewers from over 95 countries around the world witness history as Expedition Unknown, Egypt Live!, had a team of Egyptian archaeologists, Josh Gates and co., and explorers uncover the 2,500-year-old mummy of a high priest for the first time ever on live television. Wow. That, I want to that see was not that. The only, I know. That wasn't the only thing that was stunning that they found. In addition to the high priest mummy, two other mummies were revealed along with a treasure trove of antiques, including a mysterious wax head. And again, wax was not a substance that was thought to be used back in those ancient Egyptian times. Aliens. But here's what I want to bring up to your guys' attention. Carter and uh, Carnivon, they all got cursed and died, right? Let's roll with me here. Because they were all involved in that one unique experience. But much like the Ghostbusters and the idea of... Um, oh, fuck. Uh, what's the word, Preston? Thought, thought forms. Mm-hmm. Thought forms. No, what's the, what's the other word? It starts with a T. Um, I don't fuck. I don't know what you're talking about. It's thought form. The fucking monk, the the ghost monk, the guys make the thought. What's the thought form? Come. 
What's a thought form called? Oh, um, a tulpa. Thanks. Yeah, You're tulpa. worthless. Tulpas and toll shoes. That was the original name of the podcast. <laughs> That's right, Tulpas and Toes Shoes. Okay, so think about this. Did he, if an entire world is focused on here, 95 different countries around the world watching them open up this mummy's tomb, could they not have thus cursed the entire world who all together collectively watched this mummy be unearthed? I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But again... October 21st, 2019... Egypt unveils a discovery of 30 ancient coffins with mummies inside. Egyptian authorities on Saturday revealed the contents of 30 ancient wooden coffins discovered in Luxor, and yes, they included mummies. Again, old Mustafa Waziri, Secretary General of Supreme Council of Antiques, told reporters the discovery was Egypt's largest in more than a century. The first cachet of coffins to be discovered by an Egyptian mission after years of foreign-led archaeological digs. The last one had been in 1891. While mummies were found completely wrapped in cloth, their genders could not be identified by the shape of the hands on the coffin. Coffins which were carved with the hands open meant they were female, while the hands balled into fists meant they held male mummies. But we can't leave good enough alone, so we had to fuck with it. So I ask you, gentlemen, please, with a smile, I say, did we not cause coronavirus by an Egyptian curse? Yes, but not from opening up those tombs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we kept we kept joking. What I'm getting at here is we kept joking on every episode. We talked about all these mummies being discovered. We shouldn't open it. You're going to cause a curse. You shouldn't open it. You're going to cause a curse. Look at us now, gentlemen. Yeah. <sighs> okay, Preston, speaking of mummies, you picked a great story for us tonight, but first you had something else planned. Yep, I want you to ask me about Tomb 55. Preston, what can you tell me about Tomb 55? So, you know, I, I brought up earlier that um, all these other tombs that they open, like in the Valley of the Kings or even the stuff that in more modern times that they open, there's been no actual, like, curse inscribed on the outside of the tomb. So. Okay. Tuts was really like the first one where there was like a written curse. Everything else just kind of had like a folklore, like, you know, if you disturb the, you know, the 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 pharaoh or whatever, like there's going to be a, a curse placed on you from the, the you know, the afterlife. But I curse you within there. Right. But the actual like idea of a written curse, something inscribed on stone, the only time we've ever come across that is with King Tut's tomb. Now, tomb 55 is unique. And we're going to get into that. So okay. let me give you a history lesson here. 1907, a mysterious tomb was discovered in Egypt known as KV-55 or just Tomb 55. The tomb contained a variety of artifacts and a single body. Identification of the body um, has been complicated and there's still people arguing back and forth today. And by the fact that the artifacts appear to belong to several different individuals... So that kind of muddied the water. And mm -hmm. it was discovered 13 meters, give or take, from King Tut's tomb. So Ooh. that's when they discovered King Tut's tomb. That's why they already knew that that was, the, that was the one that they were looking for. Because in the previous year, they had opened tomb 55, and there was some King Tut insignia around it. But, you know, we'll get into that mystery a little bit further down. 
January 1907, financer Theodore M. Davis had hired archaeologist Edward um, Atherton and his team to conduct excavations in the Valley of the Kings. And e- Did you say Atherton? Yeah. It's Ayrton. <sighs> There's not even a TH in there. Whatever. <laughs> you can't even pull that Ayrton. Carnivon yeah. bullshit on me. <laughs> Anyways, in the Valley of the Kings. We'd be cursed because we couldn't pronounce the Pharaoh's names, Preston. We'd be dead. Yes, that's true. <laughs> So they're in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, which is located on the west bank of the Nile River and across from the city of Thebes. Almost all the pharaohs from Egypt's golden age are buried in this famous valley. So, I mean, they're, this is like the time to be an archaeologist. This is the time to be in, alive. I mean, they're, they're uh, discovering shit left and right. Uh, what'd you say, Ayrton? Yeah, let's call it okay. Ayrton. As Ayrton's team was working on January 6, 1907, they discovered the entrance to the tomb and they notified Davis the next day and began removing the rubble, blocking the entrance. On January 9th, Davis and Ayrton entered the tomb, accompanied by Joseph Lyndon Smith and Offer Weigel. Over the next few days, they took photographs of the item, so kind of like what they did with King Tut's. And, yeah, made a nice little image. Yeah, and in the beginning, they were like, holy shit, man, this is like King Tut's tomb. We beat that bastard Carter, like everything's going good. <laughs> and fuck you. yeah um finally like they, they get to the bottom of the shaft and like um it had, ca- she said. It had caved in so they were like yeah. so excited they were like fuck it let's just dynamite it so they like blew away the rubble mm-hmm. and they get in and they find a coffin and a skeletal mummy within the tomb which is wasn't what they were expecting they were expecting like king tut level shit so, tomb fifty-five, mm-hmm. fairly simple. It was small. Um, the entrance included a flight of twenty stairs, and at the time of this discovery, like I said earlier, it was uh, covered in rubble. A sloping corridor leads to the tomb, which contains a single chamber and a small niche uh, within the tomb. And at the time of the discovery, were four canopic jars, a gilded wooded shrine, remains of boxes with uh, seal impressions, a vase stand pieces of furniture, a silver goose head, four clay bricks, and a single coffin. Now, the coffin had been desecrated with uh, parts of the face having been removed and um, any sign of identification like where they would inscribe like the, the queen's name or the pharaoh's name or the prince's name, any history, anything that would have like written historical facts about this person had been scratched and chiseled away. Signs of flooding had collapsed part of the room, so there was, like, really gross water and a musty smell. And the mummy, mm-hmm. once they, they got the coffin open, the mummy had a simple gold mask with a serpent on the head, which signified royalty. But a king or queen that people feared, loathed, maybe a little bit of both. And because, <laughs> again, there's no no signs of who this person was. So it's like everything was kind of hastily done, and it's like they're trying to erase this person from history. And those four bricks that they found weren't just any bricks. Those were magical bricks placed in the four <gasps> cardinal points, and they were placed backwards, meaning they were placed to keep something in instead of keeping out grave robbers. Oh shit! Now, hey, real quick, what's a canopic jar? Is yeah, that put, they're like, the you know the ones that whatnot? have like Anubis uh, okay. and uh, Osiris and Horus and all the different gods, and they put yeah. like the entrails and the brains and whatnot. Yeah, heart and all that. Okay, cool, cool. cool. So, identifying the remains in the tomb have been challenging. So, there are many clues 
in the in the items found within the tomb, but many of these items have been linked to King Akhenaten. Um, the four canopic jars within the tomb were all empty, so there was no like remains in them. Um, they contained effigies of four women believed to be the daughters of Akhenaten and may have been created for Kaya, one of Akhenaten's wives. The Gilded Shrine appeared to have been created for Akhenaten's mother, uh, mother Queen Taye, and Akhenaten's name was on two of the magical clay bricks. Dude looks like a lady. Evidence uh, that the remains were female included the positioning of the arms. So how you talked about earlier that you have open arms and right. Yeah, open versus closed. Um, So the arms were open. So they're like, this is a chick. uh, Post-mortem damage to the pelvis and lack of male genitalia. Got to be a chick. Later on, it was proposed Mm -hmm. that the coffin could have have belonged to Nefertiti, uh, Merit Totten, or uh, Merit Cotton. And then you have like brother, sister, cousin, Kentucky style loving going on. So it could have been anybody in that whole entire mm-hmm. family. Eventually, it was agreed that the coffin was initially uh, created for uh, Kaya. However, upon further study and test of the remains, researchers concluded that the individual buried within the tomb was, in fact, a male. Even after it was determined that the remains were those of a male, there remained questions as to who he was, how old he was, and when he died. Scientific testing revealed that he may have been closely related to King Tutankhamun because they shared same DNA. Um, so it was believed that maybe it had been one of Akhenaten's other sons. Another theory was that the remains belonged to, uh, oh shit, Shiemkare. I think I said that right. I had it down earlier. Shiemkare. I think it's Shiemkre. <laughs> it's We're right, going to go buddy. with Shiemkre. I couldn't correct you. Uh, who may have been Akhenaten's successor, so it would have been Tutankhamun's older brother. Uh, so wait, Tutankhamun and Akhenaten had a cousin he, in common? Again, uh, the royal family married brothers and sisters, <laughs> so like, it, I, I can't, unless you're from Kentucky, I don't know how to tell who's who and what's what, so... <laughs> <laughs> Ancient Egypt. Yeah, We're right. not weird. You're weird. So uh, <laughs> the remains were estimated to belong to a man who died around the age of 25, but then it was later determined that he would have been closer to 20 at the time of death. So during the reign mm-hmm. of Akhenaten, religion was changing. And instead of having a polytheistic system, he had a monotheistic system. And he wanted people to believe in a God that shall not be named. And he was represented by the sun. So he just referred to him as the one true God plagues and all this biblical shit started to happen. Um, so, you know, no more multiple gods was kind of a bad thing in the eyes of the priests and the common folk. Now, according to folklore, Sakmet, which was this lioness goddess thing, got pissed and wanted to wipe out humanity. So like Santa Claus, people stopped believing in her. So darkness hit Egypt, Egypt for three days. Queen Nefertiti dies. And all of a sudden, reports of Akhenaten becoming more feminine starts coming out. He's growing breasts. He's getting, you know, depressed. He's having mood swings. His hips are getting wider. And then the priests start believing he's being possessed by the goddess herself, and that's why he's becoming more female-like. He gets assassinated. His son, uh, what do we say, Simenkre, yeah, takes over. 
Yeah. Shimenkar, and he yeah. mysteriously dies just a few months later. So now it's King Tut's turn. Tut and his main priest, I, believed it was actually uh, Samimkre that was possessed by the goddess. They perform an exorcism on the dead body and rebury it in tomb 55 and trap the goddess's spirit in the rotting body. With the added protection of the magical bricks um, in place and then King Tut being buried only 13 meters away to keep an eye on the vengeful spirit, there you go, real mummy curses explained. Wow. The reason oh, wow. why the That's curse cool. was placed on King yeah. Tut's tomb was because he was the god power that was kind of set to watch over this this actual Egyptian deity that was still possessed inside this rotting body. So 1907, they fucking blow up this one tomb, release the evil spirit, and then a couple years later, <laughs> they fucking open the other right. tomb and like King Tut's like, peace, motherfucker, going to heaven. Oh, interesting. I like that. I'd never, uh, Fritz may yeah. have explained that to us, but I never knew that. Um, yeah, Akhenaten was a really interesting character because, like you said, later depictions of his, you know, paintings and statuary showed him to have wider hips and breasts. And, I mean, modern day science could possibly explain that as just being his body producing more hor- uh, more right. estrogen and less testosterone. Because Akhenaten had, like, what, six right. or seven kids in his dynasty? But he also had a cone head. They said his head was more conical. And then a lot of people believed he was not even human at all, that he was an alien. And then some would some would say because of all the lo- uh, royal inbreeding, because, you know, you're only allowed to marry, like, your sister or your cousins. Like, you had to keep it within the, the family. Oh, yeah, keep it the fam. Yes. Only? Only. <laughs> <laughs> well, like we said, you know, Tutankhamun and Akhenaten had that uncle in common. Yeah. <laughs> and then guess and he what? He was double dipping. Dead. Dead. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, Steve, Preston and I had this really awesome um, art history, art survey teacher, we call it, uh, who taught us the ancient Egyptian um, history and all their artwork and whatnot. His name was Fritz, and he was a total uh, honest-to-goodness badass when it came to this kind of stuff. That's he actually cool. did archaeology. Yeah, he did uh, Egypt, uh, right? Egypt, Crete, wow. uh, and... Um, um, Greece, he was like all over the place. And then he just there yeah. teaching you jerk offs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is what my life has become. <laughs> yeah. Sounds he like was a, cool a badass. Dude. Hell yeah. And that guy that guy knew his shit and God rest his soul because he did pass away. Oh, that sucks, man. Yeah, a little early. That's cool though yeah. to see that he he got to do that in his lifetime, man. And he's yeah. and you can tell he's real passionate about it because then he went to teach it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Pretty much when it got cold in Kansas, he's just like, All right, well I'm gonna go dig up some mummies. And he just pieced right out. So. That's so fucking rad. Well, we've talked a little bit about, you know, mummies and pharaohs and everything else. But Preston, we haven't talked about giant mummies. Correct. So why don't you <laughs> why don't you tell us about the story you were telling me a few days ago at work? So countless people have claimed to encounter giants throughout history. So you have the Greek Titans, um, various North Norse giants. You have the Chinese giant Pangu, biblical China. China. Biblical uh, giants like Goliath and Anak are examples of stories of extremely large beings in different cultures, and this has led many to wonder if real giants ever existed. Interestingly, American President Abraham Lincoln, inspired by the viewing of the Niagara Falls, stated the following. He He was was a a big motherfucker. Yeah. He's a big man. (laughs) 
Yeah. He had to be giant to kill vampires. <laughs> he also had a curse, uh, <laughs> you know, on his tomb as well. So, yeah, because uh, the really? uh, anybody that tried to break into it um, encountered a spectral panther. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. We're tying it all back together. I mean, this it's just like the, the that snake. It's like infinity, baby. It just keeps coming back around. <laughs> Anyways, old, old Honest Abe said, The eyes of the species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Um, contemporary with the whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. So apparently... Lincoln believed in the existence of giants, but was he right? And like ap- last episode, um, if you go back to episode three, which was one of our rougher episodes, Oof. Oof. and it was back in the day when we didn't even title our shows, it's just episode three. <laughs> Raw and uncut. <laughs> yeah. We covered the topic of, of giants. Um, we talked about the famous Lovelock Cave Giants and their skeletons being secreted away in the basement of some college in Arizona. Rob hit us up with the Kentucky folklore of giants. Um, I talked about uh, the um, Valley of the Headless Men, which deals with giants. But again, let's jazz this shit up and give it the old pixelated paranormal treatment it deserves. So let's take another gigantic stab at this topic. Cool. So I came across this story by happenstance. I was mindlessly scrolling through Facebook, and a weird history article came up about a mummified body of a two-headed giant. So, wait, hold the fucking phone, I thought to myself. A two-headed mummified giant. Color my ass intrigued, and now here we are (laughs) talking about the Kapdawa. Kapdawa. The Capdawa is alleged to be a Patagonian giant discovered off the coast of South America. The body is unusual not just because it's, you know, of its gigantic stature, but it also had two heads. Could this giant be real? It is scientifically possible, but it's also associated with P.T. Barnum and the fact that it has not been examined by experts, this giant's authenticity always comes into question. Now, I want to pause right there. There was also a He-Man action figure called Too Bad that was a giant <laughs> that had two heads, but that's not how I'm bringing things back around. Just want to throw that in there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyways, the Cap Dawa is said to be a 12-footer, and the body of which is in a museum in Baltimore, Maryland, U.S. of A. It is also said to be a Pantagonian giant. Pantagonia was considered a land inhabited by giants for a long time. The legend of Pantagonian giants goes back to a story told by explorer Ferdinand uh, Magellan. In 1520, Ferdinand Magellan took time out of his busy schedule of sailing around the world to stop at what is now called Pantagonia, where he found a naked giant dancing and singing on the shore. (laughs) He's like, wait, hold the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's like look at that tackle box swinging in the wind right (laughs) so Magellan ordered one of his men to make contact with that tackle box and to be sure to recuperate the dancing and singing to demonstrate friendship right you know you don't want to make that trouser snake mad so what you just strip off your pants and dance around with your little fucking willy whipping in the wind <laughs> yeah and the giant's like laughing and giggling because it's so small <laughs> fancy meeting you here <laughs> mm. 
That's it really was a dick measuring contest. No one know? can just say a simple hello, pull your dick out, and dance around. <laughs> That's right. Anyways, <laughs> pulling the dick out worked because the man was able to lead the giant to a small <laughs> island uh, offshore where the giant or the great captain waited. Describing the scene was a scholar along for the journey, Antonio Pigfetta, who kept the diary of the journey that was later turn, turned into a book. Uh, called Mangellan's Voyage, a narrative account of the first uh, circumnavigation. When he was before us, he began to marvel and to be afraid, and he raised one finger upward, uh, believing that we uh, came from heaven. And he was so tall that the tallest of us only came up to his waist, and uh, he had a big, uh, 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 booming voice. On that small island, Mangellan um, had his men give the giant food and drink and then made the mistake of showing him a mirror. Wherein the giant, seeing himself, was greatly terrified, leaping back so that he threw four of our men to the ground. But once things had calmed down, um, the explorers proceeded to make contact with the rest of the tribe, hunting with them, not hunting them, but hunting with them, and even building a house to store their provisions uh, while on shore. After several weeks with the tribe, Mangellan hit uh, upon a scheme. He kidnapped two of them to take them back to Spain to prove that he had discovered real actual giants. But this was a cunning trick it were, for otherwise the giants would have troubled some men of our own. Mangellan gave the, them all manners of metal goods to uh, fool around with, so mirrors, scissors, bells, so they wouldn't mind at all when he slapped the cuffs and chains on their legs. Whereat these giants took great pleasure in seeing the fetters and did not know what they had to be put, and they were grieved that they could not take them in their hands because their mitts were already full of other trinkets. <laughs> Anyways, Mangellan thought... Um, Mangellan, though, lost all of his evidence during uh, the long haul back to Spain. The giants didn't survive. But what Mangellan and Pigfetta did bring back was the tale of the new name of the land of giants, Patagonia, uh, which kind of translates into maybe like land of the big feet from pata for uh, Spanish for foot. But more than likely, though, Mangellan picked up the name from a popular novel at the time, Primelon, which featured a race of wild people called the Patagonians. So there's your history lesson and hmm. the idea that an actual two-headed dude, um, big giant guy, is a possibility because we actually have this historical documentation um, mm -hmm. during the 1500s that, you know, giants existed, right? Mm -hmm. So back to the Capdawa. There are two conflicting stories of the origin of the Capdawa. According to the first, the Capdawa was encountered by Spanish sailors in around 1673 on the beach side of uh, or the beaches of Patagonia. He was captured and taken in onto their ship where they had strapped him to the mast. He got free and fucked shit up and killed everybody or most everybody and then somehow got a spear into the side of his body and died. So the crew that was left mummified and stuffed them, and eventually it made its way to uh, British, and then later the United States in the 19th century. Go back, it's Britain. <laughs> it made its way back to British. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and eventually made its way first to Britain. and the So did they mummify the giant and then sail the giant back to Britain? Like on They were like riding the giant? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> like Cabin Boy or yeah, uh, Cabin Boy. Swiss Army Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, uh, Britain, United States, and then um, once it got to the United States, it became the subject of many sideshows and freak shows as a spectacle, a spectacle of the unexplored world. Which is pretty much what we always do with things we don't understand. We slap it on P.T. Barnum's doorstep, and he makes a killing off of it. Now, the second story is that the giant was found already dead on the beach with a spear through his chest. And in this version, his body was found by Paraguay natives who mummified the body and worshipped it as some sort of religious ceremony. And at some point, the British schooner captain, uh, George Bickle, heard about it. He infiltrated Paraguay, stole the body, and uh, oh, took it back. Sailed it back. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, it's my dead body now, motherfuckers. That's so crazy. Could you imagine like, how much of an asshole you'd have to be to be like, I hear about this thing and I want it, so I'm going to go take away their religious artifact. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ugh. Disgusting. What's even crazier, though, is like he probably just strung up a sail on the giant's big old dick and then really did just sail him back to <laughs> Just rode the body, baby. Because you know what? That giant, dead. <laughs> Boom, dead. <laughs> Anyways, both stories in the same way. The body ends up in the hands of a showman who added it to the collection of curiosities. And then there's some disagreement over its authenticity. Um, some believed it to be genuine. Others are convinced that it's a hoax. So for the Cap Dawa to be genuine, we would have to suppose two very unlikely scenarios at once. That... A two-headed twin was born, but then at the same time had yet another rare and lifespan-reducing disorder, giantism. And they were somehow able to overcome all the health problems related to both conditions and become a full-fledged adult that was strong and healthy enough to engage in combat with a band of sailors. While this is not out of the realm of possibilities... Um, it does make the story much more unlikely and in need of um, considerably more evidence. Now, the body was allegedly examined by physicians in the 1960s who said that it showed no obvious signs of being faked. They couldn't find where one head was sewn on. Um, they couldn't find where you know they had added something to stretch the body out. However, no other experts appeared to have ex- examined the body to determine if it was genuine or not. And, um, you know, so maybe it has all the eternal, you know, atomic requirements. Maybe not. Another problem with the authenticity of the body is its association with Phineas Taylor Barnum, P.T. Barnum. Uh, yeah. Ooh, I called it. He was a 19th century showman, businessman, and politician known for shows in which he would display creatures or items which he claimed to be the remains of mythical creatures from distant lands. Two famous examples would be the jackalope and the Fiji mermaid, which I believe we covered the Fiji mermaid on one episode. Mm -hmm. P.T. Barnum was known for telling tales, and most of his specimens have turned out to be hoaxes, the most famous of which would be the Fiji mermaid. So any association with Barnum immediately casts doubt on the authenticity of the Capdawa. Furthermore... There is a strange art form known as rogue taxidermy, which consists of reconstructing corpses to look like mythical creatures such as dragons, fairies, goblins, and even giants. 
And even Asquatches. Yeah, Asquatches. And then there was that guy that like his cat died, and so they taxidermied um, onto a, a drone so he could fly the dead cat around. And then it be- <laughs> became that. so popular, they're like, let's do oh, squirrels. God. Let's do other birds. I remember that. <laughs> the cat shit was fucking creepy as hell. Um, So this practice is not you know, practiced very often today, but it was popular in the 19th and early 20- 20th centuries. A two-headed Pantagonian giant would be a likely candidate for a specimen to be made by rogue taxidermist. Although it is still scientifically possible for the cap dawa to be genuine as a set of... Uh, Dicephalic parapagus. There you go. Who suffered from giantism. We have to consider that the unlikelihood of this scenario with the following... The association of the specimen with a man known to have produced multiple hoaxes and the fact that no one has really examined the body since the 1960s all suggest that the Cap Dawa is more likely an elaborate hoax. But I'm not ready to call bullshit on this because if you look at that picture, I mean, that thing looks pretty gnarly. That's uh, that's impressive, man. I want to believe more than Mulder right now that there is a two-headed giant just swinging his six-foot willy around like a jump rope. Like a short Paraguay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I updated this doc while you were talking. Did you guys get the picture underneath the Capdawa? Yeah. The, yeah. Okay, so there's actually a living set of diacephalic parapagus twins right now, Abigail and Brittany Hensel. Yeah, their Instagram's uh, really cool. I've never been to it, but I was thinking the other day, again, here's the singularity, uh, whatever happened to them? Because Shayla and I, you know, back before TLC became, you know, a parasite of its own, mm-hmm. um, we watched several specials about them. And the this type of twin are highly symmetric for conjoined twins, giving the appearance of having one single body without marked variation from normal proportions. Each has a separate heart, stomach, spine, pair of lungs, and spinal cord. Each twin controls one arm and one leg. As infants, learning to crawl, walk, and clap requires cooperation, but they can each eat and write separately and simultaneously. Activities such as running, swimming, hairbrushing, and driving a car do require coordinated action. Mm-hmm. Um, this set of twins actually has been covered in the media such as Life Magazine, The Oprah Winfrey Show, the TLC channel back in 2006. Um, I mean, and they're still they're still alive. You know, obviously they've got that Instagram account, but it's just wild. So um, I didn't even read far into this uh, story, Preston, but I was like, wait, that's just like yeah. the girl from and the And if DLC you look at the show, two photos, so. I mean, look at the mummified body and then look at the actual living set of twins. I mean, they have a lot mm-hmm. of similarities to their body structure. And then if you look at yeah. the mummified body, the, the, those look like identical heads. And you have to think in the early 19th century that that would be hard as hell to fake. Like one head would actually be off a little bit. Like they, Mm -hmm. so for me, it's kind of hard to say hoax. I think that uh, the Capdawa is a a real Pantagonian giant. And when Mangellan, when they went, you know, to the beaches and found the tribe, okay, you have to think Mm -hmm. that the average European at that time was like 5'1", 5'2", like they were a Napoleon size. Why this average mm-hmm. tribe in the in Patagonia was six feet to seven feet tall. So in their eyes, I mean, they were like huger yeah. than what they really were. But like seven feet today is like the average basketball player. 
Yeah, and I mean, I don't know the Bible very well, but there's a lot of people who speculate that uh, David and Goliath, David would have been a man who was about five, five and a half feet tall, and then Goliath could easily have just been six and a half, seven right. feet tall. And they always, they always, uh, 12 feet tall. you know, like, you have to think about, like, the words you use to describe something. So, like, sometimes when we translate mm-hmm. something from, like, Egyptian to English or Chinese to English, like, the translations don't always stick because the concept of, of that language has to do with what that society knows or, or you know, like, what's around them. So in the the Bible, it always said that the giants were as tall as the cypress trees. Well, that doesn't mean literally that they were that tall. It's just that they had to have something as a reference point so that you get the idea that they're bigger than mm-hmm. you. So what's the biggest thing that you know of? Well, it's a fucking cypress tree. So you're going to say, well, they were giants. They were as big as cypress trees. Just saying that they could have been six feet, seven feet, eight feet, whatever. Right. And Well, and... What episode did we talk about the Nephilim and Lilith and all of that? It was uh, that uh, was uh, the, the yeah. in the night, two or three yeah. or one or whichever those that three parter. But I mean, this could easily also be explained by the Nephilim or the you know the fallen angels because supposedly in biblical senses it's believed that fallen angels are what we know today as Bigfoot and Fey folk and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, this could have just been. Just a jolly fallen angel who is just quite content having a big old yeah. He was just waving heads. in the wind, dancing around, and then some asshole goes and stabs him with a spear. Yeah. Hey, life's not so bad. Conk dead. Well, to round things out, then I will tell you guys the tale of Elmer McCurdy, another sideshow mummy freak. Elmer McCurdy was born in uh, 1880 to an unwed 17-year-old mother by the name of Sadie McCurdy in Washington, Maine. Now, Sadie was really upset because she's a single mom, unwed, and so she actually convinced her brother and his wife to adopt Elmer and pose as his parents. So Elmer grew up knowing his uncle and his aunt as his parents and didn't quite learn that he was actually adopted until he was well into his teenage years. So learning that his whole life had been a lie, it spent Elmer down a very dark, spiraling uh, pathway into alcoholism and delinquency. After many arrests for being publicly intoxicated and losing his job as a plumber, Elmer didn't have anywhere else to go but to join the army. So Elmer was then stationed at Fort Leavenworth, and he became a machine gunner and also trained briefly in explosives. Now, after an honorable discharge in 1910 from the military, Elmer teamed up with some of his other mismatched army buddies to carry out a short-lived and not-so-successful life of crime robbing trains. In March of 1911, Elmer and his crew planned out the robbery of an Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train traveling past Lenapaw, Oklahoma. Now, they successfully stopped the train and located the safe, containing what they were told to be 4000 American dollars. However, Elmer lacked key knowledge in explosives, and this became widely evident whenever he set off the explosion to blow up in the safe, but the blast actually destroyed the entire train car, including the $4,000 it contained inside the safe. So the gang was, however, able to make it away with about $450 in silver. So that was attempt and strike number one. 
Later, his crew attempted their second robbery of the Citizens Bank of Chautauqua, Kansas. Chautauqua. Once again, using his, you know, advanced knowledge of explosives, Elmer attempted to blow off the bank vault door. But instead, like something out of a movie, Elmer somehow managed to again misjudge his explosives and blew up the entire bank. <laughs> All except the vault, which remained completely intact. So <laughs> Elmer tried once more to blow off the door of the vault. However, the charge failed to ignite. And again, they cut their losses, grabbing what little coins they could find in the rubble. And then they escaped into the night. Elmer was then held up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where he spent most of his time getting drunk and thinking about how much of a failure he was. To me, all these names are been I've been to all these little towns and cities. <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's cool. On October 4th, 1911, Elmer heard of a train traveling with a huge cache of cash equaling $400,000. Damn, it's a lot of money back then. They put a plan together. They thought they had this one just, you know, nipped in the ass. Yeah, because the other two worked just perfect. Right, right, right. So this one, the plan is ironclad. There's no way they're going to screw this up. Not even choosing the wrong train to stop could stop these train robbers. But that's what they did. These dum-dums managed to somehow stop the wrong train. So they held everybody up. They made less than the $400,000. They actually only managed to escape the train robbery with $46 they took from the passengers on board, two jugs of whiskey they found, and the train conductor's watch. Soon after hearing about the train robbery, a posse was organized, and they were then sent to chase down the gang. The gang split up. Elmer sought refuge in a barn, where he then managed to spend the rest of his night drinking the entire jug of whiskey. Later on October 7th, 1911, three sheriff's deputies showed up at the barn, a shootout ensued, and a piss-drunk Elmer somehow managed to not hit a single person with the bullets he was firing, but he himself was killed by one solitary shot to his chest, thus ending his perfect career as a train robber and an explosives specialist. But this is only the beginning of Elmer McCurdy's bizarre journey. His body was taken to the Johnson Funeral Home, where it remained unclaimed. Now, the practice back then was the funeral director would have to embalm the body with arsenic and then preserve it for a longer period of time so that it could be claimed by relatives. Now, refusing to release the body to anybody until he was paid for the work he had performed, Elmer then remained at the Johnson Funeral Home. Trying to recoup his losses, the funeral director dressed up Elmer in street clothes, gave him a rifle, and propped him up in the corner where he charged a few nickels for people to come by and take a gander at the bandit who wouldn't give up. <laughs> the nickels were dropped into the corpse's mouth, where they were later retrieved by the entrepreneurial undertaker. Whoa. Yep, step right up, put a nickel in his mouth, here's the bandit who wouldn't give up. Is that not the most yeah, morbid you have way? Yeah, picture right here. Look at his mouth open a little bit. <laughs> Fuck, it's creepy. It's really creepy. Then, in 1916, two men claiming to be Elmer's long-lost brother showed up to claim the body. 
the two men weren't his brothers, but instead James and Charles Patterson, who were what, Preston? Carnival owners. Carnies. And they had no... Smell like cabbage. <laughs> Small hands. Small hands. Crusty jugglers. <laughs> and they were of no relation to Elmer. Instead of giving Elmer a final burial, instead they put his body on display as part of their traveling carnival. And for decades the body was passed from carnival to carnival. For decades the body was passed from carnival to carnival. And what's funny here is the legacy lived on. Every carnival that displayed the body posed him as the bandit who wouldn't give up. But with each new owner, Elmer's backstory would change. And in 1933, he was purchased by Dwayne Esper and used to promote his film, Narcotic. Elmer then found himself in the lobby of several theaters where he was touted around as a drug addict killed by police during a robbery. Oh my god. <laughs> the man just wanted to see the world, and that's just what he did. Oh my gosh, he died. nuts. Yeah, nobody sailed him like a sailboat, though. That's too sad. In 1949, Elmer made his way all the way to Los Angeles, where he was placed in a storage and remained there until 1964. Then he was lent out to filmmaker David F. Friedman, who gave Elmer his very first screen credit in the 1967 film She Freak. Then Elmer changed hands yet again, and he was sold, along with several other wax figures, to the Hollywood Wax Museum. But after a brief time on display, Elmer was sent to Canada, where he's put on display as part of an exhibit on Mount Rushmore. Finding Elmer to be too gruesome and not lifelike enough, however, the body was then returned back to L.A., where he was sold to Ed Leersch, the owner of Pike Amusement Zone. So how, did, how does this body stay, stay intact? Um, so he was preserved by the actual uh, funeral home. So they basically embalmed him with arsenic. So the body would decay at a much slower rate. Yeah, you got to think over time that skin would slowly kind of start to mummify in its own right. Yeah, but this happened how long ago and the thing is still floating around this longer? I mean, that thing is never going to find material. Oddly enough, point. Steve, the, the same thing happened with old uh, Honest Abe um, because after he was assassinated to um, get his body uh, back to the burial grounds, they had to load it mm -hmm. on a horse and buggy. So, like every so often, they would stop and kept loading him up and loading him up with more um, embalming fluid. So Whoa. when they um, people kept desecrating his gravesite, so sixty, seventy years later, when they dug his body back up to move it again, and they opened up the casket, um, they said like it looked like Abe Lincoln just died like a day ago, like he was so well preserved, and like mm -hmm. those chemicals that wow. they used back then, like why it's not healthy for everybody else. It did this amazing job of uh, preserving the body. Mm hmm. I mean, the right temperature and the right surroundings, depending where he was stored, you know, the body would stay pretty well preserved. It's just it would it would still decay to a degree because embalming, you know, tactics weren't quite the same as they are now. I'm just like picturing like what if they just did that with Abraham Lincoln, just like kept him in in a museum. Like, that'd be so crazy <laughs> if something like that happened. I could imagine going to a movie and be like, man, it was great. Yeah. Did you see the fucking the, the body chilling? In the fucking auditorium, it's crazy. Go look at it. What? Really? Yeah. Dad, can I have a nickel? I want to go yeah. see Abraham Lincoln's corpse. Fuck that. Give him a goddamn silver dollar. <laughs> Make a wish, son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is crazy. 
Well, old Elmer ended up at the Pike Amusement Zone in L.A. From 1902 to 1979, the Pike, as it's known in Long Beach, California, was the premier location for family fun and excitement. Packed with rides and amusements, it entertained generations of Californians and tourists. One of the rides at the Pike, a fun house, featured anything from skeletons, <gasps> monsters, and even a hanging gallery, with one solitary, extremely realistic victim hanging from the gallows. In life, that corpse was known as Elmer McCurdy. <laughs> they hung the motherfucker? Just a dangle? It's amazing. But no one realized they had a real dead man hanging in their haunt until decades later. These guys have no shame. In 1976, a strange discovery was made during a taping of the famous television show The Six Million Dollar Man, where they were filming at Pike Amusement Zone. Holy shit. The art director on the shoot was making a few last-minute changes to the funhouse set when he decided to move the wax dummy that was hanging from the gallows. In doing so, the art director accidentally broke the arm off the dummy. So he thought, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, no one's going to notice. I'm just going to super glue this bad boy right back where it was. But while attempting to glue the arm back in place, he then discovered inside the arm was human bone and muscle tissue. So he immediately called the police and reported the real-life body that was hanging in the amusement park. An autopsy was performed and traced the corpse's bill of sale, identified as, quote, a wax dummy, to be none other than Elmer McCurdy. Wow. Elmer was finally laid to rest April 22, 1977. He traveled the world for 66 years. They buried him in Boot Hill in a section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. In order to make sure this was the last stop in Elmer's tour, a two-foot-deep layer of concrete was poured over the body. So rest in peace, Elmer McCurdy. You traveled farther in death than some ever do in life. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you finally decided to bury him, but you really fucking buried him. You concreted <laughs> that dude. Like, not Isn't only did great? you desecrate his body for years, then you're like, all right, we're going to make sure fantastic. no one... Gets any kind of soul from this dude. <laughs> God. What would be hilarious Brutal. is if they did that and then the camera kind of pans out to a solitary farmhouse on the hill outside of, you know, Guthrie, Oklahoma. And you got the guy who owns a cemetery rocking back and forth in a seat. And he's like, oh, man, what a day. Right, Elmer? <laughs> yeah. Elmer's just propped up in the corner <laughs> by the fireplace. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> huh. Well, folks, I told you I was going to bring it all the way back around to where we began. In 1981, the Masters of the Universe toy line was created by Mattel. <laughs> and we all know He-Man, right, Preston? Right? Stephen He-Man originally was modeled after the Conan series. Yeah. But while He-Man is pretty badass, they had to have a really nasty arch rival for He-Man to fight. Somebody who was just nasty enough to possibly take over Eternia. Well, former Mattel artist and toy designer Mark Taylor recounts the backstory behind the creation of his character Skeletor, which stems back to a traumatizing event at a local carnival, in which, while traveling to the carnival, he was certain he had saw a real-life corpse hanging from a gallow in the back of a funhouse. Sixty years later, Taylor learned that his encounter at the Pike Amusement Park was in fact real. 
He says, I knew it was a real person. And over 60 years later, I'm watching the Discovery Channel. It turns out he really was a real guy. That's tight. And he really was at Long Beach Pike. It confirmed my superstitions. A.K.A. Skeletor's grandfather. (laughs) Wow. And so Elmer McCurdy was the inspiration for Skeletor. That's awesome. Man, well, what a uh, what a super packed, extra fun episode that was, man. That yeah. shit just took so many different directions, kind of like Ellen McCurdy's body. Curses, dicks in the wind. <laughs> well, guys, I think that's been plenty for this episode. Why don't we plug some stuff and get out of here? Cool. Check us out on Facebook, Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Make sure you share that shit, like that, comment, whatever. Um... Check out our Instagram, which is PXL Paranormal. Get on there. Uh, comment. We love interaction, stuff like that. Send us DMs if you have any stories or criticisms or comments or anything like that. Um, yeah, other than that, that's all I got. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you think we do a decent job, a great job, in fact, give us a five star. Give us a four star. Just give us a rating if you'd like. We'd love to hear what you think. And that helps us get out to even more listeners. The higher we climb the ranks, the more people know about our show. Indeed. And speaking of our show, check out the rest of the shows on the Pixelated Sausage Network. Check out 13 Nightmares Making Its Return very, very soon. I keep saying that. I'm going to stop giving a date because life uh, has a way of getting in the way, it seems. <sighs> Heavy sigh. But it is coming back. And then check out Animazingly Baka. Check out Pixelated Sausage. And check out Attack the Backlog. Presto, what do you got? If you need a beard. If you want a beard. If you want to grow a beard of gigantic proportions, check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. And get yourself some scents like Dundee Cedar, Bay Rum, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, and Classic. And stay local if you're in the Wichita area and go get your hair razzled and dazzled by our main man, Colin, and book your appointment today at www.cutsbycolin.com. If you need some acupuncture work done or you just, you know, need your chi realigned, go over to threepillarshealth.com and book your appointment with Benny. And if you guys are out and about on a weekend morning here in Wichita, stop in front of Spectrum Music. It's a local record store, and you might just catch a legendary glimpse of the Paranormal Egg Experience food truck. And we highly suggest checking that out. Preston, you and uh, Jeffrey tried it first, uh, what, last week? Uh, Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Now, what did you guys have? Um, I had the um, Loch Ness or the Nessie breakfast sandwich, mm-hmm. which uh, was a uh, sausage biscuit with uh, bacon. And mm. then um, she had the Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, hell yeah, dude. We went, we went um, Sunday and I had, so they had a special and it was called the Rougarou and it was a deep fried kind of like breakfast chimichanga almost. Mm. Um, with sausage, bacon, and Dewey sausage, egg, cheese. Jesus, that's good. Yeah, Shayla tried the Bigfoot burrito, which is, you know, I don't want to say it's your standard breakfast burrito because the ingredients they use just made it taste far better than anything you'd get at a Quick Trip or a McDonald's, man. It was a pretty choice burrito. 
And then we tried the squash tots, which are tots that have, I believe, egg and a little bit of sausage and some spices ground up into them. Whoa, sounds so good. Yeah, dude. They've got a uh, a Thai chili sauce, which is delicious. And then uh, everything is paranormal themed except for the Thai chili sauce. <laughs> it's just that's what it is, a sweet Thai chili sauce. But the uh, the green sauce is called the Little Green Man. Um, just all sorts of really awesome stuff, man. It's delicious. The people there were so nice, so welcoming. Um, I, I don't know if it was the owner I talked to, but I talked to a guy for a few minutes about it. I just said, you know, you know, one of my co-hosts checked you guys out a few weeks ago and he made the joke that somebody made a food truck for us. You know, it's our kind of theme and uh, it was delicious. So. That's cool. I need to get him on and here Steve, do like a little interview or something. That'd be cool, man. There's also a really great bakery. We should probably plug these guys too. I don't know if you guys have been or heard of it, but just down the street from our house, um, there's a place called Weirdo or Weird Dough. And uh, they do all sorts of, you know, cookies, cupcakes, uh, oh, some cool. legendary killer cinnamon rolls that will probably give you diabetes by just looking the at beatus. them. The beets. Um, but yeah, so they're pretty great too. I told them we'd stop in sometime and kind of give them a plug and do a little interview with them yeah, as well. But cool. Steve, next time we go to that food truck, I will bring you yeah, I would some love food that. to work. Yeah, since you work weekends. So. I want yeah, I want to try that shit bad. Oh, yeah. And then speaking to local, please go by and check out CD Trade Post of Pontius Seneca. Say hi to Leslie and the gang. Pick up some new Blu-rays, video games, movies. And then if you're down by Harry and Rock or need something printed, check out our friends down at Fast Print. All right, guys. Well, I think that just about does it. I would like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. Dead. <laughs> <laughs> The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.